All right, tonight we are going to, um, I thought we would conclude our study. I think I'll probably conclude it next Sunday night. I've got a little more material than I think is reasonable for 40 minutes that we have tonight to uh, try to uh, deal with error. And we have talked about how we got our Bibles. We really emphasized the uh, mechanisms that God has used to bring it to us, not only in the communication of it through inspiration, but also in the preservation of it. And so we have looked at how it was transferred to us. And so you have something in your lap that you have a high degree of confidence in that we can declare is God's word. And we struggle with some aspects of that that uh, maybe unsettled us throughout the way. Um, But that was not the intent to undermine God's word. Um, but rather to strengthen us to understand um, what we're really talking about. We're talking about preservation. We're not talking about one specific English version above all others, but rather we are talking about a a system of approach that honors and respects it with an expectation that we will um, have the truth of God's word before us, um, I, as I said, that we can say, this is, thus says the Lord, when we read it, uh, which you hear me say every Sunday morning, um, that this is the word of the Lord, and it is distinct from the word of men. And so we identified that. Now, if you remember, when we started talking about our canon and the criteria, let's just do a little quick overview here. This is uh, one little quiz, way back. I know it's been weeks and weeks since we really started about talking about the canon of Scripture, Remember there was an ancient criteria that they used in the early church to establish what was or would be considered uh, scripture. And there were, I believe, five elements that they were looking. Do you remember that? How many remember that? None of you. A couple of you. All right, three or four of you are starting to get there a little bit. There are five elements that we're looking at to identify a piece of literature as scripture as opposed to non-scriptural. What makes it part of your book called the Bible? Uh, how did that, how was that determined? All right, and so any of you have notes? Valerie has her notebook out. Did you take any notes on that? You have those? Anyone else? I know there's two or three people taking notes. Casey was taking notes. Um, it must be that CNM connection thing. They just all take notes. That's the, the descriptions, are, and we're going to visit some of that actually today. These are the criteria. In other words, what do we look for in a Bible, in a book, to say, well, that's Scripture? Because there's lots of books been written, even in ancient times. What, what, how do we identify that that's Scripture and not Scripture? So let's talk about those five criteria that they were using in the early church. Again, because we're going to address them And I want to remind you of these positive criteria that have been used historically to then look at what's going on presently in the last 120 years or so, well, longer than that, about 150 years or so. And so what were the criteria? Valerie and then, let's see, Valerie's got it and uh, KC. So what's the first criteria of what belongs in God's word? Is it true? Scott remembers them without even notes. That's amazing. Is it true? Is what we're saying accurate, true? All right. Is it um, recognizable as that? As that, um, God, is, and that doesn't mean that everything there is 
it, it's a true account. That is, that it might say, uh, for example, the book of Job. Is, is much of the book of Job true? Well, it's all true, but what is communicated could be false. But it is a true record of what was said. And so remember, we had some of his friends that, that spoke bad advice, and God corrected them. But we have an accurate, true record of what was said without affirming that as truth. Okay, so is it true? And what it espouses, and that's going to be a really important one that's under attack today. All right, what's the second one? Is it genuine? And by that, what do we mean? Different than true. What do you mean by genuine? It can be genuine authorship. And so we, we know that there is a writer and we can identify him either through his declaration of himself or through material in the book that helps us to identify him. Um, and so we have genuine authorship. Yes. <laughs> Genuine authorship. And Hebrews does have it. The issue there is really the identification. But we know that we can tell by the writing the, that the authorship is one of, usually between three individuals, but it was identified very early on. Let's go to the third one. Was it well authenticated? What does that mean? Okay. Is it attested to by others? Is it, is it demonstrably something that other people relied upon, identified as scripture? And they can go back and we can and see those uh, places. What's the fifth, fourth one? The style. Okay, and uh, that there, there should be a evidence of a biblical style. Um, and so we threw out some Old Testament uh, apocryphal books because the style wasn't, didn't match up. It, it wasn't appropriate. And uh, so we don't identify them as canonical. Um, and so we, we set those apart as apocryphal uh, for that reason. And what was the last one? The content, do we have good, do we have consistent theological, la, theological content? So this was the five-fold premise that was used to decide, should this book be in our Bible? And um, in theological content, as well as some of the other facets, we have... Um, things attested to, uh, which are necessary for our salvation, necessary for our understanding of the workings of God. And so when we look at books, we want to see these things evidenced. Now, in the last 150 years or so, and that might be going back a little bit too far, but there were seeds of this probably earlier, um, we have had a body of theological um, 
largely professors, um, that formulated an assault on this, these very aspects of identification. And we call them, they, they are modernly known, we know them today as textual critics. And I've referenced them a couple times. And, and what they do is called textual criticism. Um, back when they were really starting, uh, they, did, they still used the word criticism, they didn't use textual. Um, they called themselves higher criticism. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like they're superior? <laughs> Academia always seems to be able to find those terms to do that. They call it higher criticism. And it really was birthed um, in its modern form anyway. It was really birthed in Germany uh, in the late 1800s, um, maybe mid-1800s. But certainly it was well formulated by 1870 or so and it was being taught extensively in their seminaries. And um, we have one individual, American, who is credited with bringing it to the United States. And we're going to use him. He wasn't the author of it. He learned it in Germany. He went to Germany for theological training from the United States. He's a Presbyterian uh, man. Went back, came back to the United States with an evangelistic fervor almost to get the American Christians up to speed. He felt that we were way back there um, bogged down in conservatism and fundamentalism and that the Germans were way ahead of us um, in this department of understanding the, the origins of the Bible and communicating it. And so higher criticism was to take this German format of addressing books of the Bible and really challenging every facet of this criteria. They're going to challenge every single one of these five things for every single book and passage of the Bible. They're going to go after these. They're not going to just accept the historical uh, perspective of these at all. They're going to take modern aspects and they're going modern, uh, sometimes it's reasoning tools, uh, sometimes it's... Uh, it's a linguistic attack, uh, and, and sometimes it's scientific attacks, where they're going to say, ah, oh, this is a scientific error. Um, you know, when we hear the, the dimensions of the sea, not the sea in the ocean, but the sea in the temple. Um, well, we know the circumference, we know the diameter, and we say, oh, well, that, they, that doesn't equal. You can't have it, those two numbers, because that violates the rule of pi. And they see that's an error in the Bible. And so they'll apply those kinds of things, geometry, archaeology, uh, other things to the Bible, say, well, there's errors. So they're going to attack the truth. They're going to attack the authorship. They're going to attack the authentication process. They're going to attack style a lot. And they're gonna, but they're going to also attack authorship a lot through style. By their attack on style, they're going to attack authorship. And then they're going to come to theological content, and they are just going to, throw out massive parts of theology. They're just, it's just going to be a non-issue. In fact, what their intent was is to empty it of content, that the theological content um, is subjective, completely subjective. So 
I, I don't know German, and a lot of the writings of that of the mid to late 1800s was in German, and uh, some of it's been translated. But I really want to pick up on the American uh, professor that brought it into the United States because he outlined it so well uh, and, and was very articulate about exactly what the plan was and that implemented that, again, and when he was placed uh, in... in uh, in one of our seminaries here in the United States. So I'm going to keep that in line. Here's what textual criticism done. By the way, I'll, I'll tell you the guy's name is uh, Dr. Briggs. So Dr. Briggs <laughs> comes to the United States. He gets placed in Union Seminary, takes a position. It's a Presbyterian conservative seminary, seminary, seminary and uh, he is placed there. And in his address there, uh, when he is uh, chair of the Department of, Bio of Theology, and so he is placed there, and in his uh, inaugural address, where he is supposed to pledge a, a, a level of fidelity, a level of loyalty, if you will, to the Scriptures as the Word of God, he presents a fourfold uh, statement that is applauded by the students until he gets to number four. And he gets this cheering response. Um, as soon as his inaugural address is finished, the chairman of the, one of the professors under his chairmanship in the theology department, Old Testament Theology, um, goes right to the Board of Governors and challenges his appointment. Once him kicked out, uh, there becomes a great war between him Dr. Briggs, and a guy named Warfield, who is the, in charge of Princeton Seminary. Boy, I want to say cemetery so bad, I don't know what's wrong with them. And they, they engage in some heavy-duty battles over the Bible. So this is in 1891, is, his, pre, is his, his, his message. And here's what he outlines as the four problems in American Christianity with regard to the Bible. And I'm just going to outline them, then we're going to go back up and talk about how they have been attacking it. So you see, when we say modern, um, we're not meaning last 20 years. <laughs> um, it has taken root in our seminaries for over 100 years. And this has been a huge dividing line um, between our seminaries in this country since the early 1900s. By the time this took hold um, and really uh, took off in our seminaries and Bible colleges, and because training pastors. That's where he wanted to do this through, is the training of pastors. So let me lay out the fourfold account that he gave in his address where he was being uh, placed in the seminary. And so this is introduction, and so in 1891, here we go. Number one is one of the things that are holding back American Christianity is superstition, about the Bible's power. That somehow we can use the Bible like a diviner's uh, tool, a lucky charm, uh, something that can solve it if you just quote that or carry it around. And, and, uh, and so he said there's, there's too much superstition uh, around the Bible, um, that there was a superstitious loyalty to it that uh, was irrational, uh, that it's just 
a book, uh, paper and ink and maybe some leather and, and that's all it is. It's a book of other books and we can't superstitiously approach it that somehow um, that's some magical cure for anything. And so he approached it and he was loudly applauded for this first declaration that we need to get rid of this superstitious uh, approach to the Bible. The second thing he, he iterated in his fourfold uh, address was to challenge, his intention was to challenge, and he called his students to challenge verbal inspiration. That is that these were normal men just writing their normal thoughts, and the idea that God spoke his word to them um, he was going to challenge from Genesis 1-1 all the way through Revelation. That verbal inspiration needed to be challenged. These were just normal people writing their thoughts down. And maybe they were deep thoughts and important thoughts. But the idea that God spoke to them was linked again to this superstitious view of the knowledge and truth that was in the Bible. He did not deny the Bible as a place where there's truth. He denied all the uh, placement of it in this venerated place where this is the word of God. But rather, this was a book, and he compared this book, the Bible, uh, to other good books. And he listed several of, uh, of some German extraction as well. Um, and the, that we need to have a more rational perspective on this than thinking that God came down and talked to these men and spoke into their mind or heart the word of God. Now, um, his contention was the Bible never claims to be this. Is that true? No, you think a professor, a doctor in theology would know his Bible a little bit better, but again, if you've already undermined it and can challenge any part of it, what part can't you eliminate? You can eliminate the part that says, holy men of God spake as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We can deny every passage that says, God's, the Lord spoke, the Lord told me, the Lord, all of those, all the prophets, okay? And so he's going to challenge verbal inspiration. That's his, that's his number two mechanism or, or um, desire for his students. And number three, the third thing that he point blank spoke is that um, that inerrancy is a modern idea, and by that he meant in the last two or three or four hundred years that it was never intended by the original writers. It never, the Bible never claims that for itself. And the idea that there are no errors in the Bible is again linked to this empty idea of verbal inspiration that is tied and drawn from this superstitious view of this book as some kind of magical thing. And so... Um, he just flat out attacked inerrancy. There are errors in the Bible. It was written by normal people, just their ideas, and stop being so superstitious about this book. There is no power inside of it that is distinct from any other book 
other than what you lend it by your own superstition. By this point, people, by the way, he got largely applauded under number two, less so under number three, and by the time we get to number four, um, he want, he's going to challenge Um, author identifications. Yes. Inerrancy means without error. Inerrancy is that there is no mistakes, that it is, in all that it affirms, that there is no error in it. And we're going to address that here in a little bit. Maybe not tonight, but maybe next week. So he attacked the idea that, that the Bible was, was inerrant, without error. Okay, thank you. Uh, so then the next thing he's going to say, he, he made the declaration there. Remember, this is his first speech to the whole student body and faculty. He stood up there and he says, there is, we, we are 100% confident that there is no book of the Bible that could have been written by the person it was attached to that his name is attached to that book. He didn't challenge one or two. He challenged every single one of them. There is no way that Jeremiah wrote the book of Jeremiah. There's no way, Mark. These are all people that went back and used their names. They were all authors who were later, they arrived later on the scene and, and wrote these things. There's no way any of these men actually wrote any of these books. And so there's going to be this huge attack on authorship. Now, when you look at these four things, this is what he's going to introduce to Union Seminary in the Presbyterian Church. Um, and again, you can imagine the, the professors are like, what happened? How did this, how did this guy come in? Um, and he was put on trial for heresy by the Presbyterian Synod and, and cleared. He was cleared of heresy. He was um, cleared by the, by the governing board of the seminary, um, and only other seminary people, more conservative than him, engaged him. And so he uh, had this effect, and he, it, he, he again spoke in a book he had written before he had be, taken this position that this is what the American church desperately needed to catch up theologically with where the German community was. Now, if you see these dates, where was Germany around this time? We're approaching World War I, 1915, 1912, 1911. And so it had been going on for about 40 years in Germany. And it really is, and everyone complains about where was the church? Where was the church in World War in Germany in World War I, World War II? The Church of Germany had been decimated by this approach to Scripture 50 years. And so by the time we get to World War I, um, with the, uh, uh, what was the guy's name? Huh? Uh, who, who was the leader of Germany in World War I? The Kaiser, thank you. By the time we get to that point with the Kaiser, by the time we get to Adolf Hitler coming along the scene, the church in Germany was weakened so much by this approach that they had not a foot to stand on. 
They had no passage of scripture that was relevant because they had eradicated the power of the Bible. They had just taken it away. And so this guy coming out of Germany in the late 1800s, prefacing a time period in the 1900s where you're getting into World War I, World War II, uh, you say, where's the church? Well, that's where it was. Debilitated, weakened. Uh, most of the pastors didn't believe in any of the inspiration or inerrancy. I'm not saying all of them, but a large number of them overwhelmingly um, were trained in this. And so he comes on the scene and creates a lot of fervor. And there, if you read any of the church history of this period, you're going to find that this is the, one of the central battles for 70 years plus, and out of this was born a lot of the, the polarizing thing of denominations in our country, of where do you stand on inerrancy, where do you stand on verbal inspiration, where do you stand on whether it's plenary, is it every word, or is it just some of the Bible that's inspired? Um, is, it, and so we had that coming down, and this was infecting many denominations, but we want to, I'm going to just attribute it to him because he so clearly declared it as soon, but in his writings, but in this speech, he made it very obvious this is what their intent was. And so we want to, uh, we, have, we have challenged some of our superstitions. And at number one, I might have applauded that. Yeah, there's people that carry around and they almost worship their Bible. You know, and they carry it around and you got to have the right thing, you got to carry it the right way and and, you know, it's a Bible. And I remember a missionary coming in and just crying, weeping uh, at the pulpit. His wife is her testimony that her Bible had been stolen in this foreign country and she knew what it was used for because the, the paper is so fine that they steal Bibles to rip out the pages and make cigarettes. And she's just weeping at the idea of the pages of her Bible being used to make tobacco cigarettes. Um, and we have that kind of approach to it, and, and that somehow this book is hallowed, um, rather than the contents of it. It really is just paper and ink. And there's a, a nurse that, that uh, my wife was friends with, um, and she had a Bible that she witnessed with at work, and, and she would tear a page out and give it to people. And they were like, oh, you just tore a page out of your Bible. It's important, so you should read this page. All right, and we have, but we have this view like that of this, of this almost superstitious reverence for this paper and this ink, but it's not, it's what is written in here. So in that respect, yeah, I, I might, but then I realized that it's not about the book, it's about the content that he was saying is superstitious a belief in. But people applauded because they thought he was talking about the actual paper, and he uses that idea. It's just paper and ink, and, and we can't have the superstitious view of it. Um, well, what he was really addressing was the content. By the time we get down here, we realize, oh my. And so we've tried to address some of the superstitious ideas that somehow, well, I've got the right version and, and that there's, there's this, uh, that, that there is only, that we are in the finest track of every passage of Scripture well, we believe in the preservation of Scripture, but we recognize that, that there's been a human element now for almost 2,000 years and longer for the Old Testament of that preservation process. And so we want to have a broader understanding of it so that we can not 
lose its content and, and the importance of it, but lose the idea that somehow there is only one little thread throughout all of history that barely kept the Bible intact. But in fact, there were many threads that are now woven together. <clears throat> one of the dilemmas is that we only are exposed to one thread. But you weave all those threads together, and you have a very strong cord of this is divine truth. This is the spoken word of God that's inspired. And so I have tried to dispel some superstitions about your Bible and, and how it got to you, but not its content. And that's what textual critics are after. They make it sound like they're very um, higher critics, that they're using very careful criteria and, to address these issues. But really, they're just attacking its content because they don't want it to say what it says. And so this is um, how it was presented. Now, I'm still doing a little bit of the history because I want you to understand how this developed in our country. Not everybody was upset to hear this. Some people were downright happy to hear this. And within 20 years of its proclamation in the United States, 1891, by the early 1900s, we have a secret fraternity forming on our seminaries called Chi Alpha. And very secret fraternity of largely professors and some pastors, not really students, is a weird fraternity. Um, and they were secret, and they would meet together and their whole goal was to infiltrate every seminary they could with this ideology, this approach to the Bible. And very effective. And so this was a whole group of seminary professors that had gathered together and pastors that were promoting this. And so that's how it really took off. And they didn't go into our churches. They didn't talk to the people. This was not a popular movement this was very much a movement that came from the ivory palaces of the seminaries. And so we find it taking root here in our country uh, in that way. And again, Warfield is a powerful opponent to that, and he has written extensively against this and really promoted it, uh, the, the concepts of the Bible that we hold to. Um, and yes, that was Princeton <laughs> back in the day. Uh, they have been well infiltrated by now um, and for many, many years, decades, uh, with this textual criticism. So even Warfield's attempts to protect his own institution ultimately failed. And so what is the effect? Well, it really begins, uh, interesting, while he gives this in the list, it really begins... Uh, in reverse, and they begin by challenging author identification. And so, in the, in the front of your Bibles, or not in the front, but, but in, in most of the beginning of the books of your Bible, if you have a study Bible, you have extensive notes, even on my Bible that I really didn't want a lot of notes because I write my own notes in there, at the beginning of each book is a little paragraph trying to demonstrate that uh, a summary, but also says, who wrote this book? Luke, a physician, writes with the compassion and warmth of a family doctor as he carefully documents the perfect humanity of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. Luke emphasizes Jesus' ancestry, birth, 
and early life before moving carefully and chronologically through his earthly ministry. Why is all that there? All that is there is, is to counter textual critics who would come in and say, there's no way a guy named Luke wrote this book. They will challenge that, and because they have challenged it over and over and over again, conservative fundamentalists have insisted that we need to, uh, in our Bibles, add this um, information that, yes, we believe so-and-so wrote this. So let me go, since we had Hebrews brought up, which is on my agenda tonight, uh, let's go to the book of Hebrews. Let's see what my Bible says. And your Bible probably says something similar. But let's go to the book of Hebrews. Here's what my Bible reads in the preface to the book. Again, this isn't scripture. This is just what we have had to write because we know that there is assault on all of God's word in this area of authorship. Many Jewish believers, having stepped out of Judaism into Christianity, want to reverse their course in order to escape persecution by their countrymen. The writer of Hebrews exhorts them to go on to perfection. His appeal is based on the superiority of Christ over the Judaic system. Christ is better than the angels, for they worship him. He is better than Moses, for he created him. He is better than the Aaronic priesthood, for his sacrifice was once for all time. He is better than the law, for he mediates a better covenant. In short, there is more to be gained in Christ than to be lost in Judaism. Pressing on in Christ produces tested faith, self-discipline, and visible love seen in good works, which is an overview of the book. Now, although the King James Version uses the title of the Epistle of Paul, the Apostle of the Hebrews, there is no early manuscript evidence to support it. The oldest, most reliable test title is simply to the Hebrews. Um, but there is a writer who is first century, who was addressing something in his time in the church um, at this point. What these people are going to say is that someone a hundred years tried to write themselves into that and put themselves into those people's place and to write a book based upon the development to support their current position of the church. And so they not only love the book of Hebrews, they love a lot, all the books. They go after them. They go after the identity of the author. Well, this, and here's how they do that. You ready? This doesn't seem like Paul's style. This phrase, this verse, this passage, this chapter, these chapters, pretty soon it's this book. And as I go through my uh, commentaries, and I use them less and less, frankly. I, I, I just am frustrated by it. You can't, out of the volume in a commentary, let's say my commentary on one book of the Bible is, is an inch and a half thick. If I took out all the discussion introduced because of textual criticism, my commentary would be less than half that thick. Almost half of everything they're saying is to counter textual critics. It has made that kind of an influence that we have to spend enormous amounts of time to, to identifying that, yes, this fits the style of Paul, yes, and all these arguments against this being truth in your Bible, against this book being authenticated, against it being an error, all of that, uh, almost, at least half, it's got to be at least half of every commentary I have is dealing with this stuff. 
that this man, through the German theological body, introduced into American Christianity at the seminary level. And so it's still a war going on. It's just that you're largely two steps removed from it because you don't typically read commentaries. I know Bill does for his, for his Sunday school lessons, and, and you'll hear it. You'll see it, all this. And, and I'm reading chapter after chapter, page after page after page. It's like I haven't even gotten to the content of the book, and we're just dealing with who wrote it. We're dealing with when was it written. All of these things were attacked. They attacked authorship first. There's just no way Daniel wrote the book of Daniel. There is no way he could have written that. And they attack it. And they attack it through the style, and they attack it through its genuine authorship. So they're taking on two of the five original ones with this one. This is usually where they attack first. The second place, and by the way, um, these have been answered. The reason there are pages and pages and chapters and chapters and, and paragraph after paragraph in our conservative commentaries is because we do have an answer to them. There is evidence. There is some proof out there. But if your core perspective is, this isn't the word of God, this is the word of wise men, and we can pick and choose like we pick and choose out of the writings of Confucius or someone else, um, then, of course, we can attack authorship. And so they begin there. This just isn't, this, this seems like a strange word for, for Isaiah to use here. So let's just redact that. We'll just take that out. Because whoever the writer was, it wasn't a guy named Isaiah, but whoever the writer was, and there might be, and, and their implication is that there are multiple writers of each book. That each book had been manipulated over the centuries. People have put stuff in and taken stuff out and, and there are missing elements, there's added elements um, by other writers and so each book of the Bible becomes this kind of mishmash um, which um, I don't know if, how many of the books of the Bible you've read, hopefully you've read your whole Bible um, is, it's just obnoxious where they go to on some of this. So they begin here challenging its authorship through style claiming this literary ascended view that they can recognize a style different from another um, over the course of several chapters. Well, when content changes, sometimes style changes. Do you agree with that? Have you ever, have you ever listened to one of my messages? Is the style different based upon content sometimes? Some of you listen, some of you just sleep. So <laughs> it's a good nap, air-conditioned room, soft chairs. Um, does my style change? I mean, you can generally tell, well, that's pastor's approach, but there's instructional period, there is challenge, there's rebuke, there's exhortation. All those are different. Yes. You can tell from the nursery when the style changes. Um, and so there's apologetics. And so, yes, as my content um, it, it, changes, my style changes somewhat in my preaching, and the same is true in my writing. When I, when I was writing my book, I would go down there in the morning, I said, that just doesn't sound like me, but I must have written it last night. So sometimes it's just my mood, sometimes it's uh, what I had for supper, or, or the kids were yelling out, outside my door, you know, harassing me. Uh, 
it can affect style. And so the idea that one writer can't use multiple styles is, is just hard-headed. I mean, you must not have written anything. Because the fact is, is that we can identify generally the style without having to sit there and nitpick at each word and each turn of phrase. I mean, that's what these guys are doing. They're attacking the minutia because they really, they don't really care about the minutia. They want to attack your whole concept of authorship is really what they're after. Stop thinking of this as being authored by holy men of God carried along by the Holy Spirit. They didn't, Mark didn't write any of Mark. Some guy used the pen name Mark to write stuff hundreds of years after it happened. Or even a dozen years. Okay? And that's their approach. So here's where it really starts to show. He kind of gave it in a reverse order of how they do. Now, uh, oh, my time is up. I knew this was going to happen. But I wanted you to get the history so you understand where this is coming from, why it was delayed coming in. We might say, oh, it was the 50s. Well, by the time it was into the churches, yeah, the 50s. Um, extensively, we had a, this battle over the Bible. Um, but it really backed up way into the 1800s because it was at the seminary level. So we're going to talk about the fight for inerrancy, the fight for inspiration, and what are they doing to attack your Bible. And you need to realize at this point, the, the polling that they have done, 63% of pastors would hold to this view, textual criticism, in this country today. It varies from denomination to denomination. And uh, uh, there's an interesting book written, oh, back in the 70s, I want to say, The Battle for the Bible by uh, Lindsay. And um, he goes through, and, and they did all the polling back then. The polling since then has gotten worse. And so... This isn't, we're not dealing with the minority. We're dealing with the majority in our churches today that the pastors are trained in this more than they're trained in this. And so what we're doing in this study was not attacking any of this. We want to recognize the preservation of it so we have higher confidence in it. But I want you to know, and I don't want you to confuse what I'm doing with what this is. Because this is an outright assault on your Bible. And a lot of your King James-only group that are recoiling are doing that because it's the only way they know to fight against this. And I, I appreciate that. I appreciate they're saying, well, I have to have this version. It has to be God's word. It has to be without you know, error. There, there can't be a mistake in it anywhere, even in the process of preservation. And so when we talk about some of the things we've talked about, it just blows their mind because they haven't done a balanced defense of the Bible. And so they have put their entire defense of Scripture into one category, and they haven't really dealt with all these uh, assaults. They're not, they're not engaging these battles with good argumentation, good reasoning, good biblical research. Rather, they just take this rigid stand because they're safe. Well, it is safe to a degree until you are genuinely challenged with something that, like we said with how long was Israel in Egypt? And then they're just shaken because they have no other. I want you to be able to defend these things um, 
when these guys come out and challenge it, and I want you to have a balanced defense that says, I can, uh, <laughs> you're wrong. You're in error. Because you have a wrong foundation. You want to deny God's word. And they're calling your faith superstition, fundamentally. They thought he meant something else, but what he really was saying is your faith is superstitious. By the time he got down here, they recognized they were dealing with a heretic. The wise among them recognized it. But yet, he stayed in that position, had tremendous influence over the Presbyterian church. And so, I look at the 150-year history book of First Baptist Church in Elyria, Ohio. My my mom, my wife was a member there as a child and her parents. And uh, you look back there and you said, wait a minute, the Baptists and the Presbyterians were having joint VBS in the early 1900s. Yeah. And denomination after denomination had this guy and his evangelistic fervor for textual criticism influenced them to the point that it just brought these huge divisions in denomination after denomination between liberal and conservatives. And over time, the liberal element just became more and more a majority. And the conservative fundamentalists faded. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week, and we're going to talk about how these two are addressed. So, yes, author identification, we invest ourselves in it. We, um, I try in the introduction to books to talk about authorship um, because you need to know that that's being under attack. And so we have an incredible amount of confidence in authorship. Um, But these people would make us believe that that is foolish, closed-minded ignorance. And it's not. It is coming, there is strong evidence for these. And so we want you to know that this is their plan of attack. He laid it all out, 1891. And so nothing new. This was his plan. And we need to be better adept at engaging it instead of just running into a corner and and, um, hiding from it and thinking we're safe, like ostriches, sticking our head in the sand, thinking we're safe there. Which ostriches really don't do that. They just bend over to eat, and it looks like they've got their head in the sand. Okay. Well, we'll try to finish this up next week, okay, and uh, bring out some of the evidence inside Scripture and outside Scripture for both the idea of inerrancy and how do we deal science and um, inspiration. And again, we addressed this a little bit, but I want to do it from the opposite side, from the attack. What are they attacking and how are they doing it? Let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for an opportunity to consider uh, your revelation of yourself, of your truth uh, that you spoke that you desire us to know you, that there is power in your word. For out of your word, all things exist. And by your word, um, they continue. And Lord, we uh, rejoice that you have made yourself known to us. And we pray that we might um, come to your word, recognizing its authority. And that that authority... um, is under challenge and 
Some have even considered it to be demolished. But Lord, we will uh, stand firm in recognizing your word as our true authority for life and practice. We thank you for your Holy Spirit to help us in understanding it and bring it into our lives. We pray you might be faithful as, as you've promised and that we might be faithful in response. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.